If you listen to this podcast and follow what we do at Troutbitten, then you're a thoughtful angler, and you don't accept the status quo simply because that's how it's always been done. Squall of Fishing designs and creates fly fishing apparel with this same philosophy. Squalla was started by a group of lifelong fly anglers who spent their careers working for some of the biggest names in the outdoor industry, and they understood that essential fly fishing apparel like waders, jackets, sun gear, and insulation could simply be better. So now, Squalla makes gear for us, the like-minded few, serious anglers who don't take themselves too seriously. Check them out at squallafishing.com. Water is essential for life, but for Orvis, it's the blood of the brand. Orvis has been the leader in fly fishing since 1856. No other brand can match the explorative and innovative spirit they bring to the water today. Everything at Orvis is about inspiring and empowering adventure and wonder in nature. Rooted in the vitality of fly fishing, fueled by passion and curiosity for the outdoors, Orvis designs and develops products and experiences providing the knowledge and expertise to enable more meaningful moments and connections in nature. With over a century and a half of experience in the field and on the water, Orvis seeks to ignite that passion in others. This is the Trout Bitten Podcast. Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten? Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten? Yeah, Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten. It's about trout. Wild trout. This is Trout Bitten. This is the Trout Bitten Podcast, and thanks for tuning in. My name is Dominic Swantoski. I'm the owner of Trout Bitten and the author of TroutBitten.com. All right, here we are at the conclusion of this Dry Dropper Skills series. Season four of the Trout Bitten Podcast has been all about the three styles of dry dropper, and the previous episodes covered each of them in turn. Episode one was an overview of the styles, then light dry dropper and standard dry dropper, and finally tight line dry dropper was the focus in the other episodes. The skills series format is designed for covering a lot of information in a short time without room for much discussion or debate. So my friend Austin Dando and I introduced and then detailed each of these dry dropper styles. And now it's time to bring in the rest of the Trout Pit and crew to get their perspective. This season finale of the Skills Series is sort of a roundtable discussion about dry dropper tactics. So let me introduce my friends. You know them from seasons past, and you'll be hearing from them again in season five of the Trout Pit and Podcast, which begins in early October. So let's say hi to Dr. Trevor Smith. What's up, buddy? Hey, how we doing? Good. Uh, here's Bill Dell. How's it going, guys? Uh, Josh Darling. What's happening? And Austin Dando again. Hey now, again. He's in his tent. I'm in the tent. Nothing wrong with the tent. Austin, you want to tell everybody about your podcast setup? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> it looks good. I think it should be the cover photo mm-hmm. of this podcast. I like that. Sit in a corner of an upstairs bedroom with a blanket strung between two uh, curtain rods. And that's my echo cancellation. And uh, I sit at my wife's vanity table. <laughs> Very manly. <laughs> yes. Do you play with the makeup while you're there as well? I have to remove the makeup. It's too small. <laughs> what do you need on the table? A drinking glass. <laughs> <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> Corner tables are pretty small. Yeah. 
All right, so we're missing our friend Matt Grobe because he's on a days-long fishing trip in Yellowstone, and it's a rough life. But we do have some notes from Matt that he shared, things he wanted to bring up and discuss. So he's here by proxy, and we'll keep his thoughts involved here this evening, bringing up a couple things that he asked us to talk about. So guys, this is freeform. I have no sequence or layout for it. Let's just bring up your thoughts, questions, reactions, additions to the previous podcast. What do you think? Where do you want to start? What's on your mind? I loved the the series and and the first thing that came to mind for me was just how the dry dropper style kind of has saved a lot of fishing opportunities for me with the kids, you know, cuz I wear I think you guys know I wear a backpack with my kids in it sometimes to go out fishing yeah. and it's a real challenge with a with a kid in the backpack kind of throwing their weight side to side and even just even just subtle shifts to keep good solid contact drifts. And the dry dropper, the kind of freedom and some of the forgiveness that that style's offered as far as being able to still nymph but have a suspension-based technique built into the system has really saved a lot of opportunities for me to kind of salvage days on the water where I might otherwise struggle to get effective drifts and, and present nymphs. Mm. So I've really loved it, you know, and it kind of tends to coincide with the warmer weather in which I might be fishing more dry dropper anyway, when the kids are up for coming out with me anyway. Um, but I've really found it to be one of my favorite techniques to use when the kids are with me. Which style? Really, I would say the standard kind of dry dropper when I have a mm-hmm. dry fly that's really providing most of the suspension. Because if I have to if I have to be providing that slipping contact myself or doing more of a yeah, you know, a tight line you know, and I can tight line to the dry fly. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But I, I'll set it up. I tend to set it up when I'm with the kids in line just so that that nymph is connected to the dry fly rather than off my tag. Just because, again, it gives me that assurance that I'm not messing with my drift every time I the kid shifts weight and I kind of have to mm-hmm. readjust and, and kind of <laughs> keep my shoulder, try to keep my shoulder stable. Nice. Now, you said there, like there's some forgiveness there. In that style. Yeah. Yep. Do you also feel like you're losing a little? You're, I don't know, yeah. Or you're sure. sacrificing, you know, you're sacrificing something, right? Yep. Absolutely. You're sacrificing, I mean, I think one of the main benefits of tight line nymphing, you know, in that you can adjust depth at will. You can, mm-hmm. you know, really take it to the trout. So there are, there are certain sections of streams that I'll maybe preferentiate or, or tend to gravitate towards when I'm fishing with the kids, but sure. and they tend to be ones with more uniform depth or a certain bank structure that I just know I'm going to fish along the bank, you know, and kind of work my way upstream or something like that. So yep. I do kind of, kind of design it all to minimize frustration because <laughs> you can't, yeah. I'm glad they're out there with me. And so I'm going to try to do the best I can to make it fruitful for both of us. Right. I definitely feel like I cover more water with a, especially a standard dry dropper or a light dry dropper style. Let's me open yeah. things up a little bit. Anybody yeah. else? Yeah, I, I enjoyed the uh, I enjoyed the series. You guys brought up a lot of things and said things in ways that I hadn't thought of before, and so that was helpful for me. I think. And yeah, I don't remember what episode you guys were talking about, which ones you use the most often, but I think generally I use uh, just the mono rig kind of version, the tight line to a dry dropper the most often, sure. and it's usually. I think you guys kind of talked about this. It's usually sort of a, a prospecting thing for me. I don't actually do it all that often, but maybe two in 10 fishing trips, I'll actually 
switch over to it for a little bit and and it is it does tend to be in in more shallow water or when I'm just trying to kind of prospect or treat it more uh explorative you know yeah I think dry dropper is probably my favorite tactic to fish I think it has some challenges that come along with it but sure when I first started fly fishing it was like the main the main method I fished yeah. at any time of the year where I feel like the first three or four years I really I fished it a lot and so I think it's fun but you really have to be skilled I feel like it's of all the tactics in fly fishing it it seems the simplest but when you really get into <laughs> yeah. the technical weeds of <laughs> it point um, I think it's one of the most complex ways to fish. Yeah, I know you fish it a lot, Bill, and that's why I've been looking forward to uh, getting your thoughts on all this. And Grobe fishes it a lot, too. I know we all fish it a good bit, but... Especially yeah, this time of year. For sure, yeah. yeah. Like all these styles of dry dropper, for me, is, uh, you know, summer's when I fish it the most. I mean, we, we addressed it in, a, in one of the episodes. You're not going to do it much in the wintertime. Right. <laughs> we no, said, you said you were going to. Yeah, Austin said Remember? he was going to prospect and, with a Griffin no, no, no. snap and a zebra midge. Well, <laughs> that is you. No, Austin said that he, he guaranteed he could pick up a dozen fish five, six days in a row. Just prospect. You're losing your memory. We'll have to work on you. <laughs> Dr. Smith? Yeah, we'll do a little mini mental status exam. Hey, Bill, you said when you first started... Uh, fly fishing a little bit you fish dry dropper a lot and it is still one of your favorites what led you to fishing that style a lot especially early on being that it is mm. kind of one of the more technical choices it was visual and so i'd mm. grown up like spin fishing and just dunking worms dunking minnows and so when i first really got into fly fishing I, my favorite part of it was the visual aspect of it and yeah. so like seeing that fly or seeing an indicator and when I first really got into it, I really focused on hatches. And so a lot of times when I would fish hatches, the dry dropper style can be really effective with hatches because you I think uh, Trevor put it well, you have like that 3D where the fish are eating in all the different dimensions of the water. And so to cover the surface and to cover kind of like the mid current, in my mind, it gave me confidence knowing that I had two chances to catch a fish. Yeah. Instead of one. Yeah. Now, Austin, you said it's technical, but I do think most people approaching it, like Bill said, it can seem very simple. And you go, well, heck, I can fish a drive. Why don't I just right. throw the nymph on? And I really do think it's it's valuable to break it down into these three styles. If there were what I thought of as four or five styles, I'd have broken it down that way. But I don't know, it was a long time ago when I kind of realized that I think there's three different, distinctly different ways to do it. And each one, as we've talked about, there's different sacrifices and there's strengths and weaknesses to each system. But none of them are as simple as, well, let me just throw a nymph on there. It can be, yeah, but that's not really what we're all about. We're trying to get good drifts. What do you think, um, well, Austin and I covered some of this, but what do you guys think is the most effective way to get a great drift on the nymph between these three styles of dry dropper? I think there's a million variables, but yeah. to me, I feel like Trevor said this in the intro when he was talking about like fishing currents that are non-complex, meaning mm. their uniform depth and maybe uniform speed. 
And so for the most part, the best drift on the nymph is probably either tight line or you could call it bobber or you could call it standard. Yeah. Either one where you're not getting greedy and throwing long distances <laughs> yeah. because you can mm-hmm. fish all of these tactics with line off the water yeah. up to maybe 20 feet. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Crossing over styles a bit. For the nymph itself, it's hard to beat the tight line system. If you can put it on the tag, the dry fly on the tag and put the nymph on point and you mm-hmm. can really lead the nymph and sort of leave it almost unaffected by yeah. the drift of the dry fly. And yeah. I think that's hard to beat, you know, because then you're almost, you're as close as you can possibly get to the contact nymphing that that we do for its sure. purity of drift, right? Um, and yeah. then you just sort of let the dry fly come along for the ride. Because it, in any given stream, as soon as you introduce the tippet connecting those two pieces, even in a very basic current, mm. there's just some differences between the surface and where that nymph is riding, right? So there's going to be some inherent lack of dead drift that you're introducing the minute you tie it to to that dry fly, unless you're using that tight line system. Yep. Two things instead of one. Things get tougher. Try putting three on there and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Like Bill said, I mean, there's so many variables. You could make the argument that with the nymph even, you could get the best drifts on the light dry dropper. You know, mm. if you're only trying to get your nymph six inches, eight inches underneath, you know, that yeah. might be the best way to get that drift on that kind of nymph uh, it, mm. at that depth um, and that kind of speed. I just think it's really neat to understand each of the styles from the inside out and to really work with all of them. And, you know, another, another thing I was thinking about as I was kind of listening back to these, which it takes me a while to listen through them and edit them. And... I was thinking like how much there is here and how long it really takes to not perfect because we never get to perfection, but to really get something like any one of these styles, you know, under your belt, under your fingers, in your hands, getting the muscle memory, getting the confidence that you can do that and getting the confidence to see the drift and go, well, that's a good drift and they're not eating it. So I'll change something. Being able to get to that point eh, definitely takes a long time, a lot of time on the water, dedicated to one style. So we're talking about all three styles, but I don't think you can tackle them all at once, you know? I think one thing to kind of help is the length of the dropper. The longer the dropper, Mm. the more room you have for error and less strike detection. Wow. And what I mean by that is there's a couple different things that come into play. If you're not landing the dry and the nymph in the same seam, you're going to come down at different speeds and so if the nymph comes in front of the dry that fish could eat it and it could be a second or two before you're indicating it with the dries moving at any point are you talking about like the fish eating on the drop kind of thing not on the drop even so think of it as you have a seam and then you have a faster current to either side of it and so if your nymph lands in the fast water and your dry lands in the slow water, you're not going to detect that strike because yeah. the dry is in the slow water and it's just going to kind of sit there for sure. a longer period of time. Even the same thing can happen. I think Austin said a little bit about this just a minute ago where your dry fly is on the surface and your nymph is, you know, 
the further it sinks, the the slower the current becomes. And so the further they'll be out of touch. Yeah. Because they're in different yeah. speeds. More slop in the system. More room for error. Yeah. yeah, for sure. What I thought you were saying was, I thought you you meant that they were taking on the drop and you have to deal with that as well. Like if you've got a bunch of space between, you actually do have time between the time that that nymph and the dry is going to hit. And I mean, how many times do we have fish take it on the drop? It happens all the time. Oh, yeah. And so mm-hmm. if you've got that much time, if you've got a solid like half second between when that nymph goes in and when that dry fly hits or when you're in touch with that dry fly, then you could completely miss that take. That wasn't what I was thinking about. It's another really good point. Yeah, and Austin and I talked about, really with each of these styles, I like to throw a tuck cast. I like to get the nymph to hit and dry right. to hit, and I like to manipulate how much slack I want between the two. And like you're mm-hmm. saying, Bill, if I have four feet between the dry, let's say I'm tight line dry dropper, and I have four feet between the dry fly down to my uh, size 14 hairs here, something like that. I mean, I could tuck the dry right on top of the nymph and almost have four feet of slack there, you know. And then really what we want, though, eventually, is for the dry fly to be in touch with the nymph. And that's very much true for each, each one of these styles. For all three of these styles, I want the dry fly to be in touch with the nymph. That's the only way I'm really going to have that strike detection. So I'm really trying to do two different things. Uh, I'm trying to find that middle ground. Tuck it in to, first of all, get that placement so I can go nymph down and now dry fly down in the same seam and with some grace or slack, as we say, to fall. But like Josh is pointing out, lots of fish eat on that drop. And if I put too much slack, like I said, if I put four feet of slack, which I wouldn't do very often, then yeah, I got a real good chance of within those two seconds, it's going to take for the nymph and the dry to get that contact. A fish eats and I'm probably going to miss it. So Hmm. there's a, you're trying to find that middle ground all the time. Whether it's after a fishing trip or at a backyard fire, you can bet the Trout Bitten crew has a case of New Trail Broken Heels along with us. It's honestly our favorite beer. This hazy IPA is smooth and full-bodied. Hand-selected citra hops lead to notes of bright clementine and juicy ruby red grapefruit. Broken Heels is a keeper. New Trail Beer is proudly brewed in Williamsport, Pennsylvania and delivered cold to your favorite craft beer retailer every week. At New Trail, it's not about being the best angler. It's about getting out there. So enjoy nature's moments and reward yourself for a day well fished with New Trail Broken Heels. It's Trout Bitten's favorite beer. Tactical Fly Fisher was started in 2015 by fly fishing team USA angler Devin Olson with a mission to bring American anglers the techniques and gear that dominate the international competitive fly fishing scene. While you may have no desire to compete, you can still benefit from the same strategies which competitive anglers use to make them more successful on the water. Whether you want to buy a urinymphing rod, a stillwater fly line, or just some hooks and beads to fill your fly box, we've got you covered. And our teaching materials will help you learn how to use whatever products fill up your cart. Head on over to the tacticalflyfisher.com and use the code TFF10 to get 10% off flies, fly tying supplies, or terminal tackle. What's your average in a standard day, how how far are you? What's the distance between your dropper and your dry? If you're fishing standard or bobber, if I'm fishing standard, I'm not necessarily trying to get all the way to the bottom and really tap it, or even mm, thinking about getting into the strike zone every single time. Because with standard, just like with an indicator system and where a mending line, I mean a traditional indicator nymphing system, 
once the indie's on the water, I have very little control over the depth of the fly anymore. You have to do all that control, all that all those decisions need to be made, you know, before you ever make the cast. You adjust the indie. Well, in this case, like you're saying, how much line do I want from the dry fly to the nymph? All those decisions are made not in the cast even so much, but like, well, how are you going to rig things up? So when I'm fishing standard dry dropper, I kind of err on the side of being up high because I just hate hanging up and breaking off or hanging up and having to go get yep. the snag and messing. I want to fish. I don't want to be messing with snags too much. So, I mean, I don't know about depth, Bill. I mean, around here right now, lately, it's been one, one and a half feet, you know, which isn't yeah. very deep. But if I was on a big river, one of our favorite big rivers, you know, hopefully a few months from now when we get some big rains coming in and we get those nice fall flows, uh, yeah, that could be three, three and a half, four feet. But I guess my point is with standard, I'm not trying to get all the way to the bottom like I would more often with a tight line dry dropper. Because with the tight line dry dropper, I can manipulate that nymph more directly through the cast uh, and especially through the drift too. Like Austin and I said, if you know you're getting to a, to a higher spot in the river, you can kind of lift it up, gain contact with your nymph, get past that spot, and then drop it back down. Mm-hmm. I don't like to do that very much, but I can, you know. What about yeah. you, Bill? What do you think your average is? I would say at this point in time, I don't like to fish standard dry dropper or really any of them much more than two feet because Mm -hmm. I feel like if I'm trying to get that deep, I should probably switch a nymph fish because most times it'll be more effective. Yeah. And what style of nymph fishing? You mean tight line nymph? Like a tight, yeah, like a tight lining or an indicator, a true indicator. With that control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Once you get about beyond two feet i just feel like i've missed so many fish doing it yeah where i have a long dropper um but it depends on the river and depends on the the currents and stuff yeah but you're kind of back to that length again the length discussion you know between nymph and dry yeah you know you're making a good point here um you think there's something different with a dry fly versus an indie or, or do you fish indicator rigs the same way? If you were to fish an indicator rig with a nine-foot leader and then your fly line and your mending, will you go more than two feet there? Yeah, I would. But the the main thing I feel like with the indicator mm-hmm. and the dry fly is the nymphs that I have on under an indicator, I can put a lot more weight on them. And mm-hmm. so they're going to pull at that indicator. Mm-hmm. They're going to reduce the slack that could be in the system. Where with, with a dry dropper rig the nymph doesn't always necessarily pull tight to the dry. Yeah. That's a cool answer. You're not using as heavy of a system. When you're that deep too, you're going to be down near the strike zone where the water's slower and a heavy fly is going to help to slow that down the way that a light fly won't. Yeah. Yeah. And Grobe brought this up. He sent in a few thoughts and I kind of, I think it's good to think about the differences of fishing here in the East versus out West. But he talked about fishing, he'll fish, you know, a size four dry fly, and then he can throw on a really heavy, maybe a stone fly nymph or something large. And theory, you know, you can just think about the physics of it and the increase as you go up in buoyancy and then go up in weight on the nymph, you increase this tension between those two to the point that the effect of the currents becomes more minimal, right? And Mm -hmm. so from a pure drift standpoint, there's some real elegance to doing that but i think I, i'm curious what you guys think but i don't i mean i never go 
to me to throw a size four dry fly here, <laughs> right. except if it's like the cicada hatch, you know. Yeah, and you talked about throwing like a dry, like a size four salmon fly with a number yeah. eight stone fly or something. Right. And that's mm-hmm. that's pretty we, unheard of here. It's, yeah. Yeah, right. I think you'll spook most of the fish in the perimeter that you're trying to fish just hit when it hits the water. At, at that point he has the advantage out there that he can fish a dry fly that probably is pretty darn close to having the same buoyancy as like a thingamabobber. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. right. And so that's a huge advantage and you could, you can overweight your nymph because you, you have that support up top. Yeah. It changes a lot. And like Josh said, when you have that heavy weight, you know, it's going to balance things out. It's going to slow that dry fly down. It's going to stabilize your drift more. Matt made some really good points in these in these notes that he sent. And uh, another thing he said that kind of correlates with what you're saying there, Bill, is that uh, he often just goes one or two feet, really often, he says, one to two feet below the dry fly, you know, and leave it there. Um, now, if you have active fish and whatnot and they'll come up mid-column, I'd assume that's maybe mid-column for him or mid, mid to lower. And he also brings up, he says, I may go four to five feet off of a chubby. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's come to this Uh, he says i may go four to five feet off of my chubby chernobyl uh to properly cover the fish eating on the bottom of the runs or pools but that's at a different time of the season you know if he feels like he really has to get down but he says he has a lot of confidence really the same as you do bill by just running one or two feet down with a standard setup standard dry dropper i also thought the best point that matt made here is something Austin and I didn't cover, which is when you're fishing dry dropper from a boat, from a drift boat, from a raft, whatever. It does. I mean, it really changes everything. It changes the way you fish anything. I mean, it's very hard to tight line from a boat. That's the one thing I really miss. But then again, I'm like, this is neat. You know, there's so many other options and opportunities are open when you're on a boat. The other cool thing with the dry dropper is if you have somebody that can row, yeah, you can continue to fish and have almost like an endless drift because right on when yeah. you're when you're waiting you you're the pivot point mm-hmm. when you're in a boat you can continue down river yeah. at the same speed as your dry fly and so yeah. it's just yeah it's an endless drift until you catch a fish yeah or you hit the bottom yeah that's true and during that endless drift your dry fly and your nymph are eventually going to line up in perfect seams it's in, in yeah. the same seam they're going to line up perfectly they're also going to kind of reach that point of stabilization where the nymph is sort of done dropping and it's just towing along behind the dry fly, let's say at a 45 degree angle. It's going to find that angle. You know, it's going to find that, again, stabilization. You're going to have that strike detection. And this is what happens with like what you're saying, Bill, an endless drift. If you've got somebody good on the oars, they can just match that indicator or in this case, that dry fly speed. And if you have the right kind of water that isn't, you know, the gradient isn't changing up and down. And if you don't have things set too deeply, but shallow enough, then, you know, you're covering a lot of water. You're getting these endless drifts and a few men's here and there on your part as the caster. And really the, the oarsman does a ton of work. That's a fun way to fish. And it's a big advantage. And I'd say then that's why standard dry dropper, well, it is the standard for fishing you know dry dropper from a boat um enough with the tight line dry dropper if i'm from a boat i'm not going to do that as much i probably do standard dry dropper from a boat most often what we're trying to say is matt has it easy 
Yeah. Exactly. That's, He's yeah. out there in Yellowstone. It's a luxury. Yep. Right. Just choosing the way he wants to fit. <laughs> um, he brought up a good, a good limitation, though, which is your ability to cover bank water you know, depending upon the depth of that bank water is, can be limited, right? You know, if you're, if in his situation, when he's fishing, maybe a two yeah. to three foot dropper, your, your six to 12 inch bank water, which may hold some good fish is going to be relatively difficult to, to simultaneously fish. Right. Yeah. So, and he's I, and talking I think, about have like with a heavy fly, right? Yeah. With a heavy fly. And when he's extending his re, you know, his depth to kind of get those yeah. deeper drifts, then it sort of limits you to the middle of the river or to at least the deeper runs. Or that first drop off, off the bank, you're back to that point of having two different flies on trying to do two different things. And that can be difficult. The other thing about having two flies and trying to hit the bank, well, you want your dry fly right off the bank a lot of times, but then if you have two feet to the nymph, and Austin and I said this, then your nymph's on the bank. And so accuracy with a dry dropper system is limited. You tie two flies on, you're having to really place that point fly, and it's the nymph. It has to go in there first. Yeah. Yeah, you see what I mean. You just, you're not necessarily in that first lane that you want to be off of the bank. Kind of touching on fishing multiple flies, do any of you guys uh, fish two nymphs below or a nymph with split shot or, or multiple flies underneath the dropper very much? At times I fish dropper. I call it dropper, dropper. Um, <laughs> Hank Patterson. Dropper, dropper. Dry dropper, dropper. Um, <laughs> hopper, dropper, dropper, hopper, dropper. Yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the main time I use it is hatches. Usually I'm fishing the bottom fly weighted and the fly in mm. between the bottom fly and the dry fly is usually unweighted in some yeah. sort of a merger that's closer to the surface. Yeah, I do that a lot too, Bill. I like that. So we talked a lot, like in previous seasons, we've talked about the chemistry between the nymphs you choose to contact nymph with. And I was just curious your guys' thoughts on the pairing, you know, of your dry fly and nymph. And there's always the intuitive pairing of like an emerging or hatching adult and then you can put its counterpart nymph on dropper right but do you guys have favorite combinations do you feel like attractor versus imitative makes a bigger difference with this dry dropper type technique um what kind of is your go-to for the dry i love a caddis i feel like a caddis mm. can float pretty heavier flies when it comes to the droppers, though, I feel like a lot of times I like brass instead of tungsten. Mm, right on. Especially if I'm throwing like standard dry dropper and I want to throw it at distance. When you add that tungsten on the end of it, I feel like it comes in hot. Hmm. I feel like once you're above three millimeter tungsten beads, at that hmm. point, I feel like it adds too much weight and it's like a whole other pivot point in your casting. So a lot of times if I am fishing tungsten, it's usually two or 2.5 hmm. or I fish like a, or I fish a brass bead in like a three or a three, five. See, see to me, I would say that the streamlined nature of that nymph to me makes a bigger difference, or at least that's more that's what I'm point. thinking of. And I think you made it, I mean, I should probably think more about, because I do agree with you. And I've had that issue where that tungsten nymph just accelerates into the water and just, especially as that dry fly gets wet just kind of plop it under, pull it under the surface. But I tend to gravitate towards really minimalist dropper nymphs just because of their my perceived effect on the drift, I guess. 
and then your lack of control over mm-hmm. that nymph. I'm with you there. I like mm-hmm. more streamlined patterns for for the nymph when I'm fishing dry dropper. And when I'm fishing a pure tight line, I use all kinds of, you know, rubber legs, flies, and overly hackled and fuzzy dubbing and stuff. I don't care because I'm going to counteract it with enough weight to put it down where I want. And those kinds of flies often right. have those triggers. The what are things I just mentioned are often great triggers. Mm. But with the dry fly or with the dry dropper, I don't have that kind of control, that contact, that direct contact to that nymph. I can't exactly control where it's going to go. And I feel like it, I feel like it gets tossed around a good bit into currents that I don't necessarily expect it to be in. Sometimes I pick up my dry fly and that nymph is coming out um, in a completely different seam. You guys pay attention to that. Do, do yeah. you pick that up? You know what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. On the pickup, here comes my dry and where'd my nymph come out? Oh my, it's a foot and a half In front over. of my dry sometimes, right? Sometimes, <laughs> <Right>. yeah. <laughs> or in a different seam yeah. than I thought it was. Yeah, sure. I think that's important to see, no matter what yeah. style you're fishing. If you're fishing two flies, see if you can notice where both of them pick up out of the water. The first time that ever like came to light for me was fishing a green weenie and mm. you could, I could physically see it under the surface because yeah. it oh, was yeah. bright and chartreuse. And so when I watched it come through the seam, I was like, wow, that's mm. why I'm missing all these fish because I there's know. a, there's a disconnect between the two and you could like, you can often watch the fish eat it and the dry fly will never move. I know. No matter how yeah. like perfectly in contact it looks. Yeah, Bill, I've learned so many things on days like that. When the sunlight is just right and you can see a green fly or, or an egg or, or a pink fly, something like that, those visible nymphs underneath can teach you so much when the lighting's right. Those are great days. A lot of good information just by watching them, just by seeing, seeing yeah. if it matches up with your expectations. Yep. So for each of you guys, you know, we're talking about the three different styles we're fishing here. When uh, and what conditions will kind of prompt you to fish one of these styles over others or when in general will you go to a dry dropper uh, tactic over just either dry fly on its own or tight line nymphing on its own what's going to push you to change your rig in general you guys sort of talked about it but and i think i think even dom you read kind of through it at one point but it's it's when you start seeing sort of sporadic topwater feeding turn into more more regular topwater feeding and it looks starts to look more and more enticing and maybe mm-hmm. at the same time nymph fishing is starting to slow down a little bit perhaps and then it's like well I'm going to I'm going to do a little bit of both here and so usually like I said towards the beginning it's it's almost always staying on the mono rig for me sometimes I switch over but but a lot of times I'm just going to stay on the mono rig and keep fishing close to me and and make the switch then Nice. Yeah. For me, a lot of times it's the situation in which I may have one of the kids with me or something like that. And I don't know. I I was trying to think, as I was thinking about talking about that aspect, I was trying to think through other aspects of waiting that might, or even just physical limitations that an angler might have that might lead them towards preferentiating a dry dropper style where they don't have to rely upon steadiness in the hand or steadiness mm. in the wrist or so there could be some physical limitations if somebody has a medical condition or an injury or even as an unsteady waiter and just feels more comfortable with that um you you know i mean we all know bill fish is fast but i've seen him work up a stream with dry dropper and never stop walking <laughs> as he's yeah you know yeah. feathering casts <laughs> and spreading them out across the entire <laughs> span of the stream ahead of him And it's just kind of cool to see because you can truly never stop moving because the drift isn't dependent upon 
your body staying still as much as it is with a contact nymphing presentation. So mm-hmm. it's just cool to see somebody who's so comfortable with it that it's sort of a fluid, a really fluid thing for them. That's a really neat point. I want to highlight that. You said it isn't dependent on your body staying still. None of these are. Mm-hmm. If you're fishing. I never thought of it. That's, I know. That's, that's cool. That's a really good mm-hmm. point. I never thought of that. Yep. When we are tight line or contact nymphing, if you move, then your rod tip moves. And now your rod tip is in touch with the nymph and it's going to move that nymph. Um, that's a neat thing that when you have mm-hmm. the dry fly out there, or if you had an indicator out there, that's what's leading the flies. And you can move around, you can move upstream, downstream, sideways, you could trip and fall. <laughs> and maybe right. that dry fly wouldn't even move if you kept yeah. the tip up. That's a yep. really cool point. And that's a great yeah. way to sum up the advantage of that style, any kind of suspender. That's the advantage uh, that that suspender is now in touch, in charge of the presentation underneath. And we can do things to set it all up in the cast, but really once it's on the water, hmm, it's the responsibility then of that suspender, in this case, the dry fly, to do that, that leading of the course. Yeah. That's a neat way to put it, Trevor. Yeah. Precision Fly and Tackle is a family-owned business with a passion for the outdoors and a sense of adventure. They are anglers who enjoy every moment spent on the water with family and friends. Precision Fly and Tackle carries the widest selection of Euro rods, reels, lines, leaders, flies, and accessories. From the beginner to the advanced angler, Precision Fly and Tackle can outfit every angler, no matter the budget. Visit them online at precisionflyandtackle.com. Then use code TROUTBITTEN10, that's the number 10, for 10% off your order. Gear up with Precision Fly and Tackle for your next adventure. For over a decade, Smith Creek has provided innovative, high-quality fly fishing accessories designed to put your gear in easy reach, free up your hands, and keep our waters clean. This September, Smith Creek is releasing two new products. Check their website to see the new tippet holder. Each unit is individually machined from high-quality billet aluminum and anodized in one of two eye-catching colors. They hold up to five tippet spools with a patented spring-loaded plunger design that is easy to load and keeps your spools right where you need them. All Smith Creek products are built guide tough and backed by solid customer service. To learn more about Smith Creek products, visit their website at smithcreek.co. I'll I'll toss in something. There's two kind of my favorite times for dry dropper. One is terrestrials. So beetles and ants fish well, but I often like to fish a small, bright caddis that's like a has a white elk hair. Uh, Mm -hmm. on the top of it and then maybe six or eight inches off the back of it i'll fish maybe a 12 or a 14 wet ant Mm. and so that's short it gives it it gives me very very high visibility Mm -hmm. to be able to see it versus fishing some of those black terrestrials it can be difficult to see them in shaded or shadows or mixed sunlight so that bright caddis lets me cover the water and put it where I want and have that ant kind of in the film where it, where the fish are expecting it to be. Yeah. With your setup there, what stands out to me is six to eight inches. That allows you to have that accuracy next to the bank. That's, yeah. that's what I want when I'm fishing terrestrials. And now you still have it six inches back. Sure. Okay. You're still on the bank. You're where you want to be. So I'd, I'd assume that wet ant, you know, has no weight. Right. So it's, I guess I would call it light dry dropper Yeah. in that, 
it's a little more freeing and that you can cast it and not have that extra weight from a tungsten bead or a brass bead. And so you're just kind of, it's as close to throwing pure dries as you can get. That's neat. One other thing is with the light dry dropper system. If you pay attention to rise forms, mm. there are times when the fish are not eating the dry and they're eating emergers. Mm. That's one of the times that that light dry dropper system where you can fish an unweighted nymph behind it very close to the film. Same thing again, like maybe six inches to a foot behind it. Fish um, kind of like an emerger pattern Mm -hmm. that is subsurface. And that can often be the best way to catch what what appears to be a rising fish. But then when you may get closer and inspect it, all you can see is their back. Yeah. And so if you see their back, that means they're not eating dries. They're eating mergers. So throw something underneath. Right on. Throw something underneath the dry. I remember reading an article back in the 90s, late 90s, and they were saying what you were just pointing out, that lots of times they're rising, and if they're refusing your dry fly, then they're, you have to realize they're probably eating something just underneath. And so the article, the author of the article suggested, take the dry fly off and just throw an emerger, throw a soft tackle was the advice. So I tried it, but I couldn't see anything. Yeah. I had no idea where my, and he, he said, watch where the line goes in the water. I, I couldn't see that. <laughs> well, for me at the time in my limited experience, it was bad advice and it didn't work and it was frustrating. And yeah. I thought I was doing something, something wrong. And I came to realize that really it was just bad advice. Don't do that. Do what you just said. Keep the dry fly on there and throw something underneath. And you're going to get great yeah. drifts on both if you know how to mend and whatever, set the cast up right. That's the way to do it, I think. Yeah. I hate fishing blind. I hate fishing. You're trying to get slack like that and, and, and fish it blind. That's like when people tell you, oh, you don't need to see your dry fly. If it real tiny dries, if you're fishing just real tiny dries, uh, don't worry about it. Just look where you think the dry fly is. That's bad advice too. Because you don't know then if your dry fly is really drifting drag free. And hmm, if they're eating something tiny, it's got to be drag free. Yeah. And based on, I think you, your article was like, you have to be accurate in where you're putting that because that's going to be the main thing of you may not have the best vision, but if you know where the fly is going to land, you can watch that spot because you know, you have confidence in your casting landing at where you're going to look mm-hmm. right on. You guys all kind of do a lot of different rigs. I can hear like Josh, you like really staying with the tight line dry drop or bill. I know you rig a lot of different ways. Austin, you and I talked about it. Trevor sounds like you kind of like the standard and then a dry, maybe the best. Have you guys thought about these three styles before we all really start talking about it? Or you just kind of knew it, but maybe didn't have a name for it or think about it? Yeah, I think I found them just through necessity before yeah. I had a particular name for them. Just because I was trying to do those things, you know, with a with a dry dropper. Um, yeah. But I love the organization, the mental organization mm. of having yeah, the for terms sure. for them. Because I, yeah. I think that once you have the category, you can then like dive into it and, and really flesh it out and try to get creative within it. I find that, that strategy of organization to be almost freeing <laughs> in a way and sort of like it just stimulates my creativity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think when you're on the water and you're looking at the problem that needs to be solved and you're looking at the conditions that you're facing and trying to figure out how do I need to tackle this and what rig do I need to have to accomplish getting good drifts on both of these flies, we've probably all accidentally or not accidentally, but ended up with these rigs that you guys mm-hmm. have laid out in these different, um, with these different names, but having an actual kind of plan 
the way that you guys have laid it out in these three different styles is helpful for knowing when I'm faced with condition A, then I'm going to go to a light dry dropper rig because that makes most sense. And this is how to do it the best. And now there's a resource for it. And so I think that's going to help a lot of people. Sure. I didn't have names for anything like this yeah. before I started fishing with you. <laughs> I never thought <laughs> yeah. about putting titles or uh, categories necessarily to that level on my fishing yeah. tactics yeah. Uh, before I started uh, hearing about uh, you, Dominic, and the other trout bitten guys having these names for these things they're doing. Like, oh, that, that is pretty helpful. And then it helps you visualize also what your buddy was doing that day. So right if you off, get back yeah. to the truck and you go over the fishing report to what happened, you can pull out these tactics and call them by name and you go, oh, yeah, okay, I know exactly what you're doing. But if not, it, it can be a little more fuzzy. Yeah, if nothing else, it just helps in communicating with your friends, like you said. You've probably yeah. caught just as many fish without having a title for it. <laughs> but now, it, yeah. <laughs> now you can tell your buddy and you can go catch fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's good. Mm-hmm. The mental organization yeah. for me, you know, and then even I'll say like, hmm. I'm kind of crossing over here between I was going light dry dropper. Now I'm going to throw this 16 on and it's going to be a little heavier. So I'm kind of going into this standard dry dropper and maybe I should adjust whatever. You can go on and on with the, Mm -hmm. with the scenarios, but yeah, I like having it. I say all good things need a name. And um, (laughs) it's true. You do say that. (laughs) Yeah. I just like having that organization. You like words. That's why you're a word guy. I do. That's true. He's a word guy. He's a word guy. Yeah. Huge word guy. I'm not a word guy. I'd, I'd rather organize my stuff, <laughs> like my physical stuff. Your gear guy. And everything else up here is all is all clustered. Spreadsheet yeah. guy. That's right. Yeah, I can organize that. I'd, You're a numbers guy. Yeah. Yep. Hey now. Hey now. <laughs> <laughs> Need a round table. Hey now. Hey now. Hey now. Hey now. Hey now. Hey now. It's like the wave. It, yeah, that's good. <laughs> I do miss Grobe, though. Did we cover everything that he mentioned in in his uh, email here? I think he mentioned Sloop was out fishing him quite a bit lately. Ooh. <laughs> I heard that, too. <laughs> That's what I heard. Yeah. That's what Sloop That's told me, at least. Smoking him. Yeah, yeah, I heard Sloop was doubling him up most yep. times. Yeah. No problem. I heard Glow was out fishing him, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. She's a silent killer. I also heard he was bait chucking most of the summer. <laughs> wow. At the bridge hole. So it's come to this. <laughs> He's got all this dumb fish out in Montana. I mean, they only eat like two months of the year out there. So, <laughs> That's they're right. to put on the weight. They're eager. He's just hitting the whiteies anyway, the white fish. He's just after the white fish. Multi-species angler. He's probably snagging them. Snagging the white fish. There you go. And calling them namers, holding them close to the camera. Yeah. <laughs> or he was just chucking a car battery in and waiting downstream with the net. <laughs> 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 hey, there's a time and place for everything, Josh. That's, That's right. right. That's right. Guys, do we have anything else? Do we have anything else on, on dry dropper? Or are we going to close this up and not talk about it for the next five years? Yeah. I got a couple. Ah, I thought you might. <laughs> good, good, good. But what else, Bill? What so, we miss? Um, the first thing is rod types. You guys didn't touch on this, Mm-mm. but... Um, I like a, a fast or a medium fast rod to fish dry dropper. I think what we've all talked about is just having a rod that's versatile. Yes. Because if it's not versatile and you're you're limiting yourself by an 11 foot two weight, you can fish this and nymph fish, but it's going to be a little bit limiting. Yeah, I agree with that. No matter what style of dry dropper I'm doing, I don't want the rod to be really light. 
I want it to be more powerful, again, so I can decide where everything is going to land and how it's going to land. And we're asking ourselves to turn, well, a couple things over here. And especially when you have the buoyancy and then the air resistance of that dry fly, I want to punch it through the air. So I don't want a rod that's too limber, put it that way. No what, noodles? No, but you can make anything work. And so what really, the first thing about rod selection for me is what do you like to fish? And if you've developed your whole style around a fiberglass rod and casting, you know, a slower style, then yeah, you're going to make whatever you attach next, whether it's a nymph or even a streamer, you're going to make it work. I think rod selection really comes down to that personal preference. But if you're starting out, then you don't have a preference yet. <laughs> so... Medium, medium, fast. I'm with that. What about you guys? That's about when I fish regardless, so. I carry three rods with me so I have the right thing at all times. <laughs> three rods all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Rigged up. I have two O-Pro rod holsters on either hip. Right. Always. One in your hand and two ready to go. That's right. Rigged up. Yeah. Fish in the open plains, are you? Mm. Yep. <laughs> one's running bait. <laughs> the other one's trolling a spinner. <laughs> well, that's right. If we got them rigged up, well, yeah, right. one's <laughs> always trolling a spinner. That's right. <laughs> might as well. That's not a bad idea. <laughs> that's how you catch the just fish. Just tie something to your hip all the time. Just have one line coming off your hip, just in <laughs> case. That's right. No, I don't. I I carry pretty much one rod, and I pretty much never change it out because I have one good rod. What is it? That's none of your business. Everything you need to know about Josh is summed up in the fact that he has a 4K feed in a podcast with no video. <laughs> That's true. It's going to be it's going to be good if he's going to do it. That's probably going to make the outro too. <laughs> Bill, you got something else, don't you? You're itching. Yeah, I got more things good. here I'm trying to wrap them up. Yep. Uh, tippet size. So when I'm fishing dry dropper, I'm the inverse of when I'm nymph fishing. I I like maybe 6X and 5X mm. to fish dry dropper styles because it does affect the ability to stay in touch because it will create better tension if there's less mass with the tippet. To the nymph, you mean? The thin tippet then yes. to the nymph. Gotcha. Right on. But the tippet size to the dry, often I'm in the 4 to 3X range because a lot of times the the tippet is not necessarily on the water especially mm -hmm. in like a in like a bobber or like the tight line system where i'm holding the line off the water you could fish 1x to it gotcha doesn't if matter if you're yeah, yeah it doesn't matter not because it's, it's you're it's all in the all in the air especially if you're close that's when it really doesn't matter like you said if you're within 20 feet it almost does not matter you could go one X, hell, you could go 20 pounds straight to that, <laughs> straight to that dry fly. <laughs> and it really yep. wouldn't matter. There wouldn't, there's not much sag at that distance. That's neat. You got one more on your checklist, don't you? I do. I got one more on the checklist here. And I, I mentioned a little bit earlier, but just because you're fishing fly line doesn't mean you have to put the fly line on the water. Mm -hmm. You could fish fly line with like a 10 to 12 foot leader and you can still fish almost a tight line system because if you're not casting far and the fly line isn't coming very far out of the fly like maybe let's say five or six feet out of the uh out of the end of the fly rod yeah. you're still fishing almost a tight line principle because you're not putting that fly line you know on the water yeah for sure that's a big advantage 
I mean, and we all kind of do that when we're fishing dries too. You can recover. I say that to a lot of people when we're yep. when I'm guiding and we're fishing dries. I'm like, just do some of the slack recovery by picking up your rod tip. Raise that rod tip. Raise that rod tip. And yeah, there's a big difference between having 10 feet more line on the water or in the air. And the air is almost always better unless it's really windy. Yeah. Good point. All right. I'm out of points now. <laughs> All right. There it is. That's our full crew review of dry dropper styles. And it wraps up this trout bit and skills series on dry dropper fishing. Because as we've seen, what seems like a pretty simple thing, just adding a nymph under a dry fly, actually creates some complex situations. Now, absolutely, you can fish a dry dropper and keep your life easy. Fly fishing does not have to be complicated. So dangling a nymph from a buoyant dry fly and casting it to the river without much thought will catch trout, I promise. But for many of us, the complexities are what keep us interested. Solving problems, seeking answers, understanding a system, and tweaking it for the moment is fun. Because those tweaks, those adjustments, make a difference. And when we start catching more trout, when the opportunities increase, we take notice. We learn what good drifts look like on both the nymph and the dry fly. Then we improve. And that is the simple joy of fishing. Now, don't forget, there is a four-part series over at the Troutbitten website that covers each of these dry dropper styles in even more detail. Those articles are linked in the show notes of each one of these podcast episodes. Or you can simply Google Troutbitten Dry Dropper and you'll find that companion resource. So remember, the next time someone mentions fishing dry dropper, ask them what style, because there's a lot of room for variety. Hey, thanks for listening to Season 4 of the Troutbitten Podcast. Season 5 begins in just a few weeks, and we will return to the full panel format with conversations on a new topic every week. I'll be joined by my friends Austin, Josh, Trevor, Matt, and Bill, and I think we're all looking forward to it. Good. Hey, Trevor, can you do the readout? You good? I'd love to. You feeling sharp? I, I, I'm always feeling sharp. I, I, I'd like to get it in one take, you know? Yeah. No wow. pressure. One take, Trevor. That's what they call me. All right, Trevor, can you read us out in one take? Remember, the Trout Bitten Project is a free resource for all anglers. The Trout Bitten website hosts over 900 articles with endless stories, commentaries, tactics, tips, and more. Find what you like through the top menu and through the search page. Navigate by way of the categories and tags, too. Be sure to find the Trout Bitten YouTube channel, currently featuring the Trout Bitten Tips series, and an ongoing series about fly fishing the mono rig. These videos are short, useful, and unique tips for your fly fishing life. Thank you for listening to the Trout Bitten Podcast. Please give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment, because it really helps. Until next time, friends, fish hard, enjoy the day, and find your life on the water. It's pretty good. How do I need to tackle this? Nothing wrong with the tent. It just stimulates my creativity. Yeah. <laughs> That's bad advice too. But it's good. Well, eh. you could have just told me the answer. You didn't have to be a jerk. <laughs> I know. I'm so sorry. I mean, he carries three rods. I mean. Look at him. <laughs> He's all cocky. That's right.